Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Continuous Play's review of Caddyshack 2, featuring Anna McCoy. That's all I need! And Jay Newcastle. You know, I've often thought of becoming a golf club. This podcast is spoiler filled, so don't listen unless you want to know all about the plot, the characters, and the themes. At the end, we will give our recommendation for your viewing. Caddyshack 2 is a copyright of Warner Brothers, and any description of the plot, characters, or music in the film is strictly for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Welcome in, everybody, to Continuous Play's review of Caddyshack 2, starring... Jackie Mason, Randy Quaid, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, and Jessica Lundy, directed by Alan Arkush, written by Peter Torquave, released in 1998, the sequel to the 1988. Ah, released in 1988, the sequel to the cult classic Caddyshack. In the midst of the home video boom, we get this thing and. Anna, why don't we start with a like a an overview, a plot overview, if you, if you will, please. Okay. The plot, actually the plot's really simple. Um, there is a girl whose last name is Hart, and this time I wrote it out like you pronounce it, Hartunian. There is a girl um, by the name of Tate Hartunian, and she has these friends who are really snobby and belong to Bushwood Country Club. And she's kind of getting involved with them, and she wants to join, and she convinces her dad, Jack Hartunian, who is kind of this self-made man in the construction industry, is not the golf club type, that she wants to, She it would be good for her to join this golf club, and that it'd be good for him, too. And so he goes in, and he's this short dude with really bright red hair and really bad suits even for 1988 to join Bushwood Country Club and of course he clashes with the people and he doesn't fit in and hilarity is supposed to ensue but it really doesn't. Isn't that what uh, Rodney Dangerfield's character was in the last movie? Wasn't that his whole thing? He was a construction magnet, he'd made a lot of money and he was really gaudy? I mean, Yes, but he Yes, and in the if you know anything about it, they couldn't pay Rodney Dangerfield enough money to do this movie. And at the last minute, Jackie Mason um, signed on as Jack Hartunian. Now we we need to talk about the people in this for a second. It, right. For those that don't know, Jackie Mason is a comedian. Really, is best known for his. 
kind of, I don't know what you'd call it. It's this. He's a stand-up comedian. He makes a lot of jokes. He's he's of Jewish descent. He makes a lot of jokes from that point of view, and it kind of always plays that sort of curmudgeon character. And and they brought him in here to basically be Rodney Dangerfield, but more PG. And we'll go there in a minute. And then he's he's got you know Randy Quaid's his lawyer, who's this out of his mind person. Randy Quaid's actually kind of funny in this. For the, yeah, he, I thought he was one of the better people in it. Too. Yeah, one of the few few things in it. They got Dan Aykroyd, who's taking over the Bill Murray groundskeeper role. <coughs> Chevy Chase returns as Ty Webb. This time he's the club's majority owner. We can assume that's part of the bet that was maybe won in the first film. I don't know. It's been eight years. I mean, it, we've got these characters, but we seem to just be going over the same boilerplate ground we've already done before. Yeah, it's the same thing, but with worse, with bad characters. You know, it's kind of like the same plot, the same, this just the same plot, the same stuff with less heart, worse acting, and worse character development. <laughs> as, you know? as if it could have been. Um because <laughs> you know the last one wasn't exactly you know Citizen Kane, but uh, but it worked for what it was. But um, well, let's <clears throat> let's talk about about the themes here, Anna. We still have this sort of <clears throat> pardon me. We still have this theme of the nouveau riche versus yeah. the old guard. This time though, we we don't have anybody interesting like Ted Knight who played Judge Snails in the last one. We get Robert Stack, whom the, the only, and I realize he's a he's a well known actor. I didn't even put him in the cast list, sadly enough. Uh, he he's a well known actor. I know him from Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, was, when he was what, on when I was a kid. So. That's what I was gonna say. Is that what? Um, and there's also a Family Guy something with Robert Stack. There's a family got everything with everybody, kind of like South Park. But, yeah, um, yeah, I remember from Unsolved Mysteries, and when I was watching this, I just kept hearing Unsolved Mysteries' voice. It's like, there was no inflection. His voice never changed or anything. It was like, any minute he was going to say, tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, and you hear the music, it's it's, it's just like he was playing himself. Oh, l- listen, I'm I'm not I'm surprised they didn't do the little music cue in the background <laughs> somewhere, you know, just to be stupid. Because yeah. everything else in this movie is is hammy like that. R- Robert Stack is not a stranger to comedy, though, and we should mention that he was in the the airplane films, the the Zucker film, you know, which mm-hmm. is a straight slapstick. So this is it's not like that's a stretch. It's just he's kind of poorly used in this. It's not really. I, I I have problems from the beginning because we're we're going back to Bushwood now, and we you've you've mentioned we got Jack, this father of this daughter who who really wants to improve her lot in life, and she's trying to get dad to join this country club, and clearly that's not going to happen. They're never going to let him join. So his solution is he wants to buy the majority share that Ty Webb Chevy Chase's character owns in this film, and he does, and then turns it into like this. Ferris Wheel Amusement Park Redneck Land from Hell. Yeah. Kind of like kind of like a bigger miniature golf course. Yeah. And you know, yeah. that's what it reminded me of. And I suppose the theme is that if you let the new rich in with the old rich, they'll they'll make everything cheesy and they'll ruin it all. And the thing the, the idea is that no, they're they're people too, right? But then what does he go and do? The very thing they all feared he would do. Yeah. So I just, oh, I don't know. Um, I, You know, 
I have a hard time. There's very, there's very little to go on here from the get go. This is unlike the last Caddyshack that had that great opening where you saw Danny and his huge Catholic family, and he got rained out by his dad or, or, or ragged out by his dad uh, for the money, and then had to go to work, and you, you got introduced to everybody inside of like ten minutes, and you kind of knew what they were about. I, I had 20 minutes of this going, and I, I really didn't know what was going on. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that as I was watching it. And I was trying to come up with a good, which, granted, I've got a list of 100 bad things. <laughs> but I did think of one good thing, is that, the the to me, and you'll disagree with me, the plot flowed better. And it's because it was so simple. Okay. It was that she, that um, Kate was really getting in this high society thing, like you said, wanted to improve her lot in life. And she thought by hanging out with um, what was a really young China Phillips and um, who played Mary Frances Young or Miffy, um, <laughs> who was um, Robert Stack's daughter. She thought by hanging out with these people and kind of molding to them kind of what people have described to me as forgetting your background or forgetting where you came from, yeah. just kind of molding to them and doing that, that she would improve her lot in life and just keep going forward. And that was kind of her, I thought of her more in the Danny role in this movie, but the plot does kind of, to me, it's not like the first one where you got, um, the Danny plot, you've got the tie plot, you've got the gopher plot, you've got all these plots coming in three, and the Bill Murray plot, you've got all these plots coming in three different directions, and or five. This one was so simple, and that might be its downfall, but you could follow it. She wants to improve her lot in life, her dad's standing in the way, they kind of make her dad mad, so he decides to buy the country club and turn it into what they, what all of them just despise and, and I, thought would. I, I honestly I will agree with you on that. This is easier to follow. The thing that, mm-hmm. that made last one so kind of disjointed was the fact that it was a lot of improv. Well, now yeah. you've, you've got actors in it that, I, with the exception of Quaid, really aren't great at improv. And, I, and I'll lay that on Dan Aykroyd too. Aykroyd's a great writer. But he's mm-hmm. not the improv artist that his contemporaries are. Chase, Murray, no. Ramus, those guys. He he's not an improvisationist. He is a he is a writer. But he got a hold of this thing, and I mean, he even he was just kind of wasted in it. So, but I will agree with you there. It's an easier plot thread to follow. And I I would argue this: if they had left out the name Bushwood. Mm-hmm. And the characters that they basically brought over from the old film, they, they brought over Chevy Chase and they brought over Bill Murray's character. They just changed him to Dan Aykroyd's crazy captain who's you know shell-shocked and all that stuff. If they had left those things out and just replaced them with other things, it, mm-hmm. it might have worked even. But I think because those those things are so iconic in memory, the way those characters are played – this fails so miserably. And we got to talk about this is 1988, okay? So home video has just started. Caddyshack had a life because of home video and because of cable, like Showtime, Uh HBO, all that. They ran that movie all the time, you know? So you could, people had seen enough of Caddyshack that it was in the public conscience, at least enough for Warner Brothers to come up and want to put out a second film. And like I said, it's the same thing with the Ghostbusters. They did this eight years later. And maybe that's a good thing now. Studios 
do them so much quicker, like within a, they try to turn them over within a year or two mm-hmm. of the, I mean, of the first one. And maybe that's a good thing because it's still in our conscious, conscious, in the back of our minds, kind of. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, can you imagine if they waited eight years to put out, like, the next Spider-Man? Oh, or the next, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, well, you know, we might go it. back. Yeah, we might go back and look and go, well, that just kind of sucked. But I, there's, there's something about in the 80s, they have these, I don't know if it's just how the studios work then versus how well, the studios work They just have these long gaps between movies. I have a theory about this, all right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I will give credit where credit is due. I borrowed this from, you know, our friends over at Now Playing Podcast who do a lot of horror series and stuff like that. And a couple of the series they've gone through churned out films every single year, almost on the clock, in the 80s. And in the 80s, the films that got turned around fast were the horror films, not the comedy films, and not the dramas, certainly, or anything like that. And and there's there's always been this little backlash in Hollywood about the cash cow of horror movies. Was that they, they put them out quick, they don't put a lot into them, and they get a ton of return right. in them, and they don't care about them. But if you're going to take a franchise and then build upon it, you want it to be somewhat respectable. Now, I, I will also enter this, and I don't know this. <coughs> I don't know how much Harold Ramis owned of the original rights of Caddyshack and how long it took for them to get it away from him to to be able to, to, to write the sequel. That That's something I, I wasn't able to find in any of my research. There's, there's very little about this film out there, uh, oddly enough. So I don't know if that was part of it or if they just, if it had just been a while since they had done anything with it. But yeah, I, I'm with you. There's a, there's a long time between um, the, the first film and now the second one. And you'd almost think that that's too much time. And because of the times, again, there's, there's home videos kind of limited at this point. There's some cable access, but the public conscience of Caddyshack is because of its its scenes and phrases. Why would you try to replicate those characters again? Why not just go in a new direction? Even if you wanted to call it Caddyshack too, why bring Ty Webb into it? Why bring the the Carl uh, groundskeeper character back into it? Well, the whole point is they brought the Carl Carl character back, but in a slightly different form in a worse form i mean let's just say that dan Aykroyd is awful and that accent oh just oh. got on my last nerves i could not even listen to him and i could and it was so bad i couldn't listen to him i couldn't really figure out what he was doing and from what i could tell was that um robert stack had him trying to kill jackie mason or something i don't know <laughs> he was trying to, i think he was just trying to blow up all of his little I, uh, construction but he I looked know. like he was going to kill him so. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Like it was cute and heartwarming when when Bill Murray was trying to kill the gopher. Yeah, you know, little gopher. It's, a, it's one step up from a rat, as yeah. um, as Carrie Bradshaw would say. It's just a rat with a cuter outfit. But um, you know, it's cute. It's a gopher. He's a stoner trying to make his own grassy play on. It's it's endearing. This is just psycho. You know, it's a crazy yeah. accent. Well, this is this is the lieutenant from Platoon who's now come back and is is suffering from some real serious disorders and is basically turned loose on these people and it's it doesn't play right like you don't buy it at all it seems so forced and it is, that's takes, a good way to describe this whole movie is forced oh everyone's performance is forced yeah and you gotta wonder if they knew. 
this thing had problems early on. We'll, we'll get to that. You mentioned the gopher. I want to talk about the gopher for a minute. Can we talk about the gopher? Wait a second. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You'll probably hear it till her daddy because okay, I'm back. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, if we did blo- if we did blooper reels, that'd be on it. Um, <laughs> anyway. You can probably still hear her in the background, like ah. Okay, can we talk about the gopher for a minute, Annie? Because the gopher. Yeah. Okay, in the first. I don't about the- yeah, clearly the gopher is a. He he's this little animatronic thing, and he makes dolphin sounds. We talked about that last time, the last podcast when we talked about Caddyshack One. It's funny. He kind of coughs up the smoke after Bill Murray tries to blow up the whole golf course with him in it. This time we got to give the gopher a voice. You, you can you imagine yeah, the production I meeting? I know. I noticed that too. That um, we were. Um, that, Hold on a minute. Uh, Hold on a minute. <laughs> we can still hear her. Yeah. I know. interruptions i can tell okay uh, the gopher just just a terrible trope and I, I i have to think and this is a result of the next thing the next decision they made and what we talked about the last film was an r-rated comedy there's a lot of language in it there's drugs there's nudity there's the whole bit well they not only dumb it down below the r in this one which i'm i'm okay with i can work with that but it's pg and it's so pg it's borderline g if there's not some explosions in this movie the, yeah the, the gopher feels to me like we have now crossed this line where we we have to put we have to put something for the kids in there to get it and i'm, I'm looking something up here so i'm kind of dragging here this was the same year that roger rabbit came out Okay. Oh yeah, I love Roger Rabbit. Well, uh, yeah, well, yeah, and I think uh, am I right about that? Who yeah, it Roger came Rabbit? out. In, yeah. Okay. Disney geek over here. It came out in '88. Okay, so that's already out. Now they had to know that was in production. Okay, that, that there's this live action animation thing. So what do we got to have? We got to have a gopher, and we got to have a talking gopher because we got to compete with that. Okay, and yeah, Roger Rabbit was the second highest grossing film in America in 1988 just under Rain Man and just before Coming to America and Big. So we got three comedies. Well, if you count Twins at number five, a lot of comedies in the top five there. Guess where Caddyshack 2 ranked? It's so low, they can't even give it a number. It, it only pulled in like 11 million versus Roger Rabbit's 156. So we're talking $1988 here. I, I have to think that the Gophers transformation, if you will, was a direct result of we we got to compete with the animation domination that's out there. 
and well, uh, we've, we've taken this thing and turned it into a PG movie. And something I was, I think I said in one of the other podcasts, I think it's the Ghostbusters one, is that you've got at the beginning of the 80s, you've got Caddyshack, you've got Ghostbusters, you've got the original National Lampoons, um, your, yeah, the vacation where they go to Wally World. Yeah. You've got all these really kind of classic, not necessarily family type comedies, but you know, Caddyshack's broady R rated, Ghostbusters is pretty family friendly. But you know, you've got this this great comedy and it's and I don't know if it's the the I don't know what did it, but in the eighties it's the late eighties is just like fluff. I mean, off the top of your head, can you think of one classic movie that came from the eighties? I mean, like the late 80s, like one good classic comedy where you just rolled and rolled and laughed and laughed and laughed, like Caddyshack or like Ghostbusters or something. No, even good films like Coming to America and Roger mm-hmm. Rabbit had have things in them that make them dated and kind of slow. So, yeah, no. Yeah. I, is this, a, and I'm not, I don't want to get political here, but I mean, we're in the Reag, the height of the Reagan 80s. Right. I know he's out of office when this came out, but we're in that, that moment where Tipper Gore's, you know, taking on the rock and roll industry, and we got, we got all this stuff going on in America. I think this is a part where we really started dumbing down films. And I'm not against PG comedies. Like, I want to make that very right. clear. And I think you can take R-rated franchises and go PG and make it work. Look at the, You mentioned Vacation a minute ago. Christmas Vacation, which is the second sequel in that series, is a is a PG film. And it's one of the first things um, ever done. I thought European Vacation was in between the first one and the Christmas. It, it is. I said it was the second sequel. So. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah that's cool. <laughs> Christmas Vacation. It is, is. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's hilarious. And it's still it's hilarious. Twenty years later, I mean, every Christmas when we're putting up the Christmas tree, we watch that. Oh yeah. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. Yeah, you can't miss the thing. And it, and it's an example of something that it's still kind of pushing the limits, but it's it's not an R-rated film, you know? No. And, and And they could have done things with this again to make it work. Now, we've sat here and tried to defend this for, you know, 30 minutes here now, and and I feel like we're, we're talking about things that were not part of the conscience because the filmmakers didn't even have a complete story. You mentioned that the plot works a lot better because it's simple. They weren't satisfied with it. And at one point, the story goes, they tried to bring Rodney Dangerfield in to fix the script. They wanted him to write Jackie Mason's stuff and all this. And he took a look at it and said, what's with the Ferris wheel? And tossed it in the trash. And and I'll tell you, that's where this one should have stayed. Because yeah. this was a half-baked half done idea you i think you had two movies going on here i think you had the old caddyshack crew when you when you got chase and ramus in, or chase and ackward in there and even though i said ackward's not an improvisationist he's clearly channeling you know murray and, and some of that other stuff yeah. so you got those two and then you've got robert stack who doesn't know what he's supposed to be and then you've got jackie mason and we didn't even have a cool danny character this time jonathan silverman who's had a pretty good acting career a lot of people know him from weekend at bernie's and and brighton beach memorial and stuff like that. He's sort of the poor man's Matthew Broderick, is what I always called him in the 80s. He's good in this, but he's on the screen for such a little time. He's one of the caddies, yeah. but you know nothing about him from start to finish in this film. I think they focused on the wrong people. Jackie Mason can be funny in spurts. He's not funny to carry Fair a whole man. film. I, yeah. I agree with you. I completely agree. And like I think I told you today, <laughs> my favorite character in this movie was Jonathan Silverman because he had about the least amount of time. <laughs> and 
every every scene he was in was just a better was one of the better scenes to me and I'm I don't know and I am a fan not from the weekend at Bernie's I think the dude needs to just quit making movies if he makes this a weekend at Bernie's but um he has really had a good TV career yeah you know he he um has done episodes of Friends he had a sitcom on after for that came on like not after Friends was off the air but on NBC after mm-hmm. the time slot that lasted a couple of years. And he's had a very steady TV career. And I think he does better in TV than movies. So that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I liked it. I like Jonathan Silverman. I really do. And I think he was really good in this, but ever, and even Jessica Lundy, who's also had a TV career, a pretty good TV career, pretty steady. I liked her in it. She was good. They should have focused on that more and they didn't. And it's just all the characters were just, and you really didn't care about there was no like I said heart or warmth like I told you it was like Jackie Mason was doing a really bad Rodney Dangerfield impersonation the whole movie Oh, yeah, and you, it, that's clear. I mean, as much as Ackwood may be trying to ape um, uh, Bill Murray, Jackie mm-hmm. Mason is a, a knockoff of the way Dangerfield does his whole shtick. And, you know, we talked about how disjointed maybe the last film was, but the thing that worked is you didn't have one person that had to carry it. Michael right. O'Keefe could do the Danny stuff, and it worked, all right? Chevy Chase could do the Ty Webb stuff, and it worked. Roddy Dangerfield did the Al Chervik, and it worked. And, and, and Ted Knight did Judge Smales, and it worked. You had these characters that just when they were on screen did little things, and Bill Murray as Carl just worked. And when you got them together, it was it was explosive. But if you think about it, th- there's very little where a lot of those people are together. They just sort of have their scenes, and it, maybe it jumps around too much. But I think that makes the movie work because you don't have nobody there can carry a film necessarily, or could have right. carried that film. And then they, they've thrown most of this on Jackie Mason now to try to carry and. He's not. I'm not a big fan of his, but I don't blame him for this. I don't think he had anything to work with. No, he really didn't. And something I noticed, and I don't know if this is necessarily his fault or the writing's fault or what, but in the first one, like Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield would line our rivers when he's first. He's walking in mm-hmm. and to the pro shop, and he he's got the Japanese or Chinese or Asian business associate with him. And he's like, "Hey, Wayne, don't tell them you're Jewish. They might not let you in." Yeah. You know? He he timed all that stuff, everything he timed, and like he's paying the um, valets, like, okay, get my clubs, get my car, get yourself a meal. You know, his timing was just perfect. And that's something I noticed in the first few minutes of this movie is that Mason's timing was very sluggish. And granted, it could be the material, it could be, I, from what I've heard, I don't think Rodney Dangerfield is much of an improv. He's, he's like, not. He's, he's he a good likes, writer. He's like accurate. Yeah. He's a good writer. So. He likes stuff scripted and to go from there, whereas someone like Bill Murray could just kind of go off the cuff. Yeah. But um, so I'm sure it was all scripted, but his timing, like he just would go through those scenes real quick, just zinger after zinger after zinger. And it was just like Jackie Mason, Mason's timing was sluggish. It was just very sluggish. It's like, okay, that would have been funny five seconds ago. It was yeah. like, like I said, it was like a really bad danger film impersonation. Yeah, and, and, and it comes off like a really bad TV movie is the problem. Right, so, and then, like I said, Robert Stack, for months, uh, I loved him on Unsolved Mysteries, but, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's he had no 
it was it's just like watching someone with the same face the whole time like you know Ted Knight got angry and it seems like he put a little more it seemed like Robert Stack just styled it in oh you oh know? and maybe it was, it in, yeah yeah maybe it was the material whatever the reason but he just it just he dialed it in it's the same deadpan expression through everything there's no enthusiasm there's no variance of emotions there's no timing even it's just like you're it's just like he's hosting unsolved mysteries and you know that's totally different than acting you know being a spokesperson or a host of something is different from acting well it's the same character he played in airplane you know, he, he's Rex Kramer again, but unfortunately he doesn't have anybody to work off of who's got any kind of comic timing. With one exception, and we talked about it in the intro that we liked him, Randy Quaid is hilarious in this as kind of a kooky <laughs> lawyer. And there's a scene where the, there's two people from Bushwood and they're mm-hmm. representatives of, of Robert Stack's sort of interest, basically. And, the, you know, they don't want uh, Jackie Mason to build anything there. And Randy Quaid just goes off on them. It's on YouTube if you want to go and find it. I mean, go go watch it. It's the funniest thing in the movie because he absolutely flips his lid on them, and I, it was it was the funniest thing in the film. Now he's good. He's got the timing for it. I yeah. ha- I happen to think he probably went off of what was on the page to be able to pull that off. Well, I also like um, the blowtorch line. Is it like, is it like oh, help, I got a blowtorch in my face or something like that. I love that line. And he has the best, he has the best lines of the movie. Yeah. You know, he has the best lines. He has the best character. And I, I'm, I'm expecting it when they're like, leave it to the, let's leave it to the lawyers. Yes. Let's leave it to the lawyers. And then they've got these real stuffy lawyers from the country club. And and I'm thinking Randy Quay is just basically going to be a dressed up version of Eddie from the national lampoons things. And then he just like goes off on them. And he's hilarious. He really is. You said that he's the dressed up version of cousin Eddie. That's exactly (laughs) what he's playing. And it worked. It worked. It's the only thing really in this movie that, that works. Now, I, I want to mention this because, you know, we had we didn't really talk about the Kenny Loggins song that was a part of Caddyshack 1. Oh, it's, in, yeah. it's in our credits. That was iconic. Well, we, we get a song from Eric Martin in this one. And if you don't know who Eric Martin is, folks, if you remember the band Big, uh, Mr. Big that had the, the hit, the kind of acoustic hit, um, Back in the uh, the the 90s, uh, I Want to Be With You or something like that. Well, anyway, Eric Martin is, a, is an 80s singer, and he did this song called One Way Out for this. And it's all over the trailer. If you go watch the Caddyshack 2 trailer, you hear this rockin' hairband 80s song. And I thought, you know, Kenny Loggins kind of worked with the Caddyshack group because when you think of Kenny Loggins, you kind of think of, laid back kind of cool rock, especially the early eighties, late seventies, Kenny Loggins stuff. I'm not talking about yeah. Top Gun. This is way yeah. before that. Yeah, that was way before that. But it, it kind of fit that whole motif of all these yeah, it's just a bunch of guys and you know you kind I of I think you could have put the Top Gun music in this and it would have been better than what they it, did. It might have been, but it's so bad. And I'm like, man, this is this is so influenced by Warner Brothers and they just jammed every product they had in this thing. Well I was and also it, it messed oh, it up. I was gonna say it messed just messed it all up. It well, I was gonna say the very first note I have about this is music at the beginning, very synthesized eighties music. Oh yeah. That's yeah. the very first note I have about this whole thing. 
you know, we talked about in the Ghostbusters series how we went from Ray Parker Jr. to Bobby Brown, and I would I would posit that that's more connected than Kenny Loggins to the '80s rock that they threw in this thing. Uh, yeah, well, I could see the connection in the Ghostbusters because in 1989, Bobby Brown was popular. You know, we don't have the rap we have today, but I guess hip hop and stuff was becoming more mainstream and was becoming the trendy thing to do and in 1984 the kind of gimmicky not quite synthesized but almost synthesized kind of stuff like Ray Ray Parker Jr. did was hip I think they were on I think in the their respective years they were on the same plane you know what I mean oh oh, yeah this is Nowhere near. I know nothing about music, and I know that this is nowhere near. And the whole look of the thing, too. You know, the last film looks like it was shot in the 70s with that kind of technology, all right? Mm -hmm. But it it still feels like a movie, and I don't know enough about camera apertures and, and, you know, uh, film types and all that kind of stuff to to tell it all apart. I'm just saying this thing looks like the worst of the Comedy Central movies that were ever put together. It looks cheap and looks bad and i have no idea what i think the budget was like six million dollars on this it made 11 million so it made a profit whatever it it looks cheap it looks bad and it sounds bad and for a for a movie that is this badly put together they let it go on for a long time it's an hour and 40 minutes Uh, that's a long long time i the last one was about the same length but i never noticed it i didn't pay attention to how long caddyshack was this one i'm counting it down i'm like when can we get to a credit sequence and if that gopher says one more word you know that's something else i said gopher in the dining room really Really? We, just, we shoehorn that gopher in every scene. I mean, it was, it's almost like, yeah, I'll go back to the horror movie uh, example again. Every 10 minutes, we got to have a kill. Every 10 minutes, we got to have the dang gopher. And it just keeps coming in. It's 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 just ridiculous. The, I mean, when you, your gopher is the highlight of the movie, maybe, you know, this movie doesn't need to be made. Maybe, uh, maybe you know, it needs to stop. But, I mean, it had... Like I said, I thought the plot was more concise. You know, like I said before, I thought the plot flowed a little better. You didn't have five different storylines coming at you. But the acting was bad. I mean, the bet, like I said, best acting was Jonathan Silverman. It's because he only had three or four scenes, you know. So it's too much gopher, too much animatronic. And the gopher didn't need to talk. We don't need to what gopher's thinking it, it, it also has the after school special ending well not even after school special ending it's got the saturday morning cartoon ending because K- kate the daughter of of jackie mason's character jack is mm-hmm. is so embarrassed by what he's done of course and i mean it's just a disaster you know um dan Aykroyd's character has you know, basically blown up everything around him and and has shot himself with a dart you know it's all this goofy stuff going on and she's trying to comfort uh miffy uh which is a great character name by the way and miffy says you need to change your name to something more you know waspy basically drop the tunian part of your name and just be heart and of course she's so offended by that that she turns her back on the the old rich and makes up with her dad and all is well and i mean i'm like man do we get some cereal commercials with this too because come (laughs) on i know it was cheesy yeah. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. But no, I, no, that, that's a, I can do cheesy. The last ending was uh, Caddyshack 1 ends on the cheesiest of cheese. You know, Danny wins. You know, that, that can't get any more cheesy. It's, it just feels so 
I keep using this word. It feels so forced and like we, they got it to is. a point and said, yeah, we got to get to an ending. Uh, make up with your dad. Well, and, who I actually thought, I will go back and say this, is that who I actually thought on that scene, the very last scene, she calls her, who she is, um, the mother, Cynthia Young. Yeah. And she called, I thought that, that was about the only time I really laughed is she called, she says something to her mom and she goes, uh, she's like, oh, shut up, you spoiled little rich bitch or something. <laughs> and I mean, that, I mean, to say that like her daughter's like, oh my God, what are we going to do? We don't have the country club. She's like, oh, and she, and the mother's like covered in dirt and something. She, or and she's like, oh, would you just shut up, you spoiled little rich? <laughs> And I thought that was one of the funniest lines. And I think, and looking back, I think she would have been a better character as a foil than Robert Stack because she actually put some kind of emotion in her, the woman who played her. Yeah, Dana Merrill, yeah, who's actually a pretty good actress and isn't bad. Yeah, Yeah, she she was okay in this. Again, I don't think there was anything for her to work with. And... I, you know, she has a couple of good lines that what you got to look at too, where this went. I mean, it, it made money, but it didn't make nearly the money. The first one did. It has not made the money over time. It uh, received the, you know, golden raspberry award nominations and stuff like that. Though I don't think it won any of them. Oddly enough. I don't know how it could have. How this did not win a Razzie is, I mean, <laughs> have you said, I mean, all about Steve won a Razzie and it was nowhere near as bad as this. I would have to go up, go back and look up the Golden Raspberry Awards for 1988, and and I, see. I want to know what's worse than this in 1988. I, I'm curious to know. You know, as a matter of fact, I'll edit this out. I'm going to dig it up because I got to know what beat this because this is such a piece of garbage that there's no way. <sighs> Let's see. How do I get to? I'm going to the Razzies page. I'm just trying to find out who the winners are. Yeah, I don't know what law. How what could have beat this because. Oh God, this is so terrible. Um, let's see here. Okay, 1988. <clears throat> Worst picture. Okay, here were the nominees in 1988, Anna. We said what could have beat this? Caddyshack two, Hot to Trot, Rambo three, Mac oh. Mac and Me, and Cocktail and Cocktail one. Worst actor. Was were, nominees were Bobcat Goldthwait and Hot to Trot, Jackie Mason, Caddyshack Two, Burt Reynolds in Rent a Cop and Switching Channels, Tom Cruise in Cocktail and Sylvester Stallone in Rambo Three. Stallone won it for Rambo Three. Um, let's see, worst supporting actor. It did win one. Dan Aykroyd won worst supporting actor. He beat out Harvey Keitel, Christopher Reeve, Richard Crenna, and Bill Barty. Uh, Wow. Yeah. So it won a Razzie, actually. Um, that's probably good. How this lost, it wasn't even nominated for worst screenplay, probably because they didn't believe anyone had actually written this. So, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's this is terrible. Um, you got anything else to add on this? You want to wrap this up? I, just, God, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> well, well, yeah. I'm going to add this, that I paid Blockbuster $2.99 to rent this as a download, <laughs> and I want my money. I was putting it off and putting it off, and I think I even aimed you, and I'm like, is there are there any free sites? Because I'm like, this is just a waste of $2.99. I know it. I haven't seen this movie and i know it's a waste of 2.99 and granted i went in with those expectations and i'm like maybe it's not a total waste of 2.99 but it's a waste of at least 75 percent of that oh, and, yeah. and um i was like it does it like 
it does have some interesting points, like the plot and some of the actors actually do have halfway decent performances. But I'm just, I was just so disappointed in that 299 that I'm never going to get back. Or yeah. But luckily, I was working while I was watching this, so it's not that two hours of my life I'll never get back. It's just two dollars and ninety nine cents. I'm amazed you could get anything done with this in the background. This thing is is a derailment of life. I mean, you know. You, <laughs> You look at where everybody went from to that. We talked about the director Alan Arkush. This was the last movie he directed. Uh, he he's done a lot of television now, and even you know recent stuff. He did some Melrose Place and Dawson's Creek and Ally McBeal and stuff like that. But he never directed another feature film after this. If you look up his uh, filmography, you can probably understand why. Uh, th- yeah, this one I, I just. Uh, it's hard to sit through. I uh, we, we got to get to this point. I think it's pretty obvious at this point. But Anna, what kind of play recommendation do you make for Caddyshack Two? Oh God, is there anything worse than Burn It? I mean, <laughs> no. is there? I mean, don't I, like Ghostbusters. I said, you know, maybe check it out if you like the first one. But this, just keep the memory of the first one. And just pretend this one, just pretend this one never existed. And unless it's Roger Rabbit, just pretend any movie in 1988 didn't exist. You know, just forget it. It's a bad time for movies. It was a bad sequel. Um, the actors could have done better. They might not have had a lot to work with. It's it's just, there's there, there's not enough good points to warrant this ever being watched. I, I agree. Totally. This is a never play all the way. Burn it. Forget it. This movie should not be seen. Okay. It should have never been made. It should have never been released. It it should not be seen. Avoid it. And I'll tell you this. You'd have to hunt it to get it. Okay. So yeah, it's it's, it's hard. I try. I try to find it. And it's not on TV either, so you probably won't see it. But if anyone ever tries to tell you, hey, let's watch both Caddyshack films, say, no, let's watch the first one, and then let's nod on the second one. Let's plant a tree or do something productive with our lives. Because yeah, this, this thing is a complete waste. Never play. Forget it. Even if it's free on, like, Encore or AM, which I do not know why this would ever be on American Movie Classics because there's <laughs> nothing classic about it. But if it's ever on free TV for whatever reason, don't watch it. That's just two hours of your life you're never going to get back. Absolutely. This is a bad movie and needs to be avoided. But yeah. hey, don't avoid us just because we picked a bad one. We've, we've had some fun with these uh, these four podcasts, and we certainly appreciate you downloading us. You can go to continuousplaypodcast.com, check out our other series, and also get tips on what we're going to be doing in the future. Got a lot of cool stuff planned for the rest of the year. For Anna, I'm Jay. Hey, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on Continuous Play. Thank you for joining Continuous Play's review of Caddyshack 2. Caddyshack 2 is a copyright of Warner Brothers and any description of the plot, characters, or music in the film is strictly for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended. Please follow us on our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com and leave us a comment there or on iTunes. 